0: Welcome into Rinse and Repeat History. It's the podcast where we look at the parts of history that repeat themselves, or rhyme, and see what lessons we can take from them. After all, if you don't learn from the mistakes of history, you're bound to repeat them. I am your host, Palmer Ferguson. Let's get started. Welcome into the second episode of Rinse and Repeat History, Season 1, The Pale Riders. The COVID-19 pandemic is still going on. With almost 900,000 confirmed cases worldwide and 42,000 deaths. This episode will focus on one of the most deadly outbreaks in history. Today, Winston Black joins us to talk about the Black Death. Winston is a historian of medicine and religion in medieval Europe. He's written numerous books on the Middle Ages and I hope you enjoy the interview. All right, Dr. Winston Black, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. Anytime. So today, kind of want to talk about the Black Death, which is the, if I'm correct, the second bubonic plague outbreak.
1: That's right. Yeah, the second pandemic.
0: So just diving right in, what was the time frame like on this?
1: When we talk about the Black Death, we use the term sometimes to mean any bubonic plague. Really, historians use it to talk about the first and worst outbreak of bubonic plague in the 14th century. So the worst uh, of that outbreak was from about 1347 to 1351. So four or five years of plague cutting through the population.
0: To kind of paint a picture, consider me that I'm your everyday peasant in the 14th century. What's, okay. what's my life like? What's the cultural and uh, political climate? And what's going on around me? It actually
1: is getting to be a pretty bad time uh, for everyone, but especially for the peasants compared to the previous century. In many ways, the 13th century was a golden age for almost everyone in Europe. The population was growing, the weather was good, people were better fed and better educated than they'd been in centuries. But after the turn of uh, the 14th century, after about 1300, things start changing in terms of climate and politics to make life a lot worse. In the 1310s, there was a great famine for about 10 years caused by massive climate change. Several million people died in Europe and Asia in those years. So that's uh, affecting the lives of everyone, but especially the peasants. And also in Western Europe, we start getting in the 1320s and 30s the beginnings of what would eventually be called the Hundred Years' War, really the biggest and longest-lasting war of the Middle Ages, which would really overturn the lives of almost everyone as the kings of France and England were taxing everyone to pay for this long-lasting war. In some places, trying to force people back into serfdom or servitude that they had gotten out of their families had been able to get out of in the previous century so it's an increasingly
0: dark time even before the plague hit gotcha so it's just it's ramping up to the plague it's just getting worse Yeah. can you explain the origins of the plague how and how it uh how it kind of manifests in its host
1: Sure, yeah. Plague, we should be clear here, I mean it can be used to refer to any epidemic disease, but usually we mean specifically the disease caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. And Yersinia pestis is, uh, first and foremost, it lives in rodent populations. We think of it mostly in the human terms, but it's really a rodent bacteria and plague is a rodent disease. We become aware of it as human beings when plague makes the jump from rodents to humans. And that's actually kind of rare in biology. The fleas that live on rodent populations, we tend to think uh, sort of the infamous black rat, but one of the main carriers of plague are marmots and ground squirrels in Asia. And it seems like in periods of major climatic change, rodent populations suffer or move or they're being attacked or eaten by people. So in these periods of stress, the fleas on these rodents will start jumping onto human beings and can then pass on the Yersinia pestis bacteria to human beings. So that's why several points in the last 2,000 years, there's been outbreaks of plague where it's moved into the human population. And then, of course, when we get in the human population, we've got to ask, well, how does it move? How does it spread? And it seems one of the things that makes the Black Death so terrible is part of the wonderful things of the 14th century is the growth in long-distance trade. The Silk Roads of the ancient world uh, were reviving, uh, in part because of um, promotion and protection by the Mongols. We tend to think of the Mongols as always violent, but they actually promoted a lot of trade. And that seems to have gotten... um, Merchants, travelers, missionaries, moving across all of Eurasia. They, unfortunately, became one of the main vectors for passing plague-ridden fleas and rodents to new populations.
0: So it used the trade routes that the Mongols kind of, like, set up and helped protect to travel all the way across the continent, all the Eurasian continent. Yeah, and I should make clear that that's our our main theory that we're working with now.
1: We're still lacking the documentation and archaeology that can really prove this theory, but it seems to be the most likely explanation for how plague passed from Central Asia, where we tend to get what we think is the homeland of these rodent populations with plague, how it got from there east to China and west to the Middle East and Europe.
0: Now, you mentioned that that was the the most agreed upon theory that we're going with today. Now, there's a, you told me it was a dated theory, but what is your opinion on the theory? It was caused by a viral hemorrhagic fever.
1: About twenty to thirty years ago, and so what well, I mean mean by dated, but it's worth talking about this. A lot of historians working together with biologists were bothered by um, a real problem with the Black Death, and we're looking at it. We're pretty sure now it killed probably fifty percent of the population of Europe, the Middle East, and beyond. But modern plague in the later nineteenth and twentieth centuries in the so-called third pandemic, it was terrible, but it at most killed only 2% of the population. And so the biologists pointed out, we got a problem here. This is acting like a different disease with a massively higher mortality rate. You got, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, historians and biologists started proposing other diseases. So as you said, a viral hemorrhagic fever like Ebola, some scholars proposed anthrax, others simply said, it's some disease other than plague as we know it. that all changed. That theory has been debunked in the last decade thanks to the development of the ability to source what we call ADNA, ancient DNA. It's the idea that you can crack the bone, find enough uh, preserved protein DNA. Uh, it's broken up over time, but there's enough there that we can test it and actually find out what these people had in their bodies and also what they died from if it had overwhelmed their blood. And sure enough, hundreds of skeletons have now been tested from burial grounds from the first and second pandemics, and they've all been shown to essentially be full of Yersinia pestis DNA. And so, without a doubt, the the first and second pandemics were caused by Yersinia pestis plague. We're still left with the problem, though, of explaining why was it so much more deadly than the modern plague and we're still kind of stumped on that one
0: good to know who can play that theory to to rest but that is an interesting kind of like a a cliffhanger there of why it was so much more deadly than the modern one yeah it was
1: proposed that possibly the bacterium had mutated over time which they do to make it less deadly but now that we have enough dna from the ancient world, the medieval and modern period, it's, it's been shown that Yersinia pestis has actually changed very little in the last 2,000 years. So, not enough that could explain these different mortality rates. So, we've got to look at something in human populations that that's changed. So, that's what the historians and microbiologists are looking for now.
0: That is super interesting. That is good to know. So, switching gears, we're going back in time, back to the 14th century. I'm a peasant on the ground again. What did I think was going on? People are dying all around me. They have these weird pustules growing out of their necks and their groins. What did I think was going on?
1: First, got to say that we almost never know what any peasant was thinking. We've got to go to what the educated people, the priests and professors were telling everyone. So that's what we got to go by. But what you would have heard as a peasant from your priest or a passing friar who might have been to the cities is that this is a a pestilence they never called it the black death at the time it was simply just called the big death the great mortality or the pestilence and they had sort of two overlapping explanations that weren't contradictory but sort of one's religious and one's more medical The religious is god is angry at us and God often gets angry at us sinners, but now God is really angry. (laughs) And rather than simply punishing individuals, God is punishing all of humanity in his great anger. And so the priests and others, they searched their own souls, asked you peasants to search your souls, to think of what have you done wrong individually and as a community. And so throughout the Black Death and for centuries afterwards, European Christians, and this would also happen among Jews and Muslims as well, people ask themselves, where did we go wrong? And you get all sorts of answers of classic, I lied to my neighbor, or you would get more specific um, condemnations uh, saying there's too many tournaments, or men are dressing like women and women dressing like men. But you also get the much more tragic outcome that people, this really wouldn't be the peasants, it was more sort of the middle and upper classes in the cities, they would seek to blame other people and that very often would be their religious enemies nearby as they saw the Jews who would live who were living in most of the cities in Europe and tragically when people were not blaming themselves they would turn on Jews falsely accuse them of poisoning people by spreading plague poison they never got a good explanation of how this worked but falsely accuse them torture them to confess and then put them to death. And to make it clear, this didn't happen everywhere, but we think several thousand Jews were killed in um, German lands and Eastern France in this period. But I want to also go to the other side here, of uh, this with the medical side. It doesn't cancel out the religious side. They could really accept both. The doctors and natural philosophers in the universities were looking for an explanation, a natural explanation of why this happened. And they argued, since they didn't understand germs or insect vectors, they would say that the air had been poisoned. Uh, eventually, this poison would be called a miasma, a pestilential air, caused perhaps by earthquakes releasing toxic vapors from the earth or too many corpses in wars. A variety of explanations. Sometimes they would again turn on their neighbors and blame the butchers, the tanners, the sausage makers, especially anyone who had a smelly dirty business. Whatever the cause was, is said, this air is being corrupted all across Asia and Europe, and it's traveling from town to town, and we have to look for ways of blocking this pestilential air. So you would get this combination of religious and medical explanations. As far as we know, the the peasants would be taught and would be asked to act upon.
0: Okay, I have a one question. i want to come back to that. But just jumping on to what you just said, what were some of the more contemporary remedies that the, uh, I guess, more scientific community would uh, try? Sure,
1: yeah. Once they had determined what they considered to be the natural cause of the disease, they then searched the medicine they had, which would go all the way back to the Greeks, Hippocrates, and Galen, uh, as well as more recent authors, and look for ways of either purifying the air or preventing bad air from entering your body. Here's a, what's fascinating about them? They can look quite modern. It can look they use some of the same methods that we find in modern disease prevention, but their explanation is wrong. So you want to have clean air. So they would light fires to even obnoxious smoke, but the the idea is you want to kill the invisible miasma. So they could burn strong-smelling woods or herbs like. Rosemary, wormwood, or sometimes just burn oil and turpentine. But you want to create an air that can fight the bad air. Something less dangerous than these is also vinegar. Vinegar, what became a cure-all for almost everyone, rich and poor, where they would uh, doctors would be recommended to wash their hands in vinegar. Drink vinegar, cover their faces in vinegar. If you're wealthier, though, I mean, anybody could get vinegar, but the wealthier would be recommended to get the best perfume and cover their faces with them. One of my favorites is an orange um, pierced with cloves. Some people still use those at Christmas because it smells nice. But this is a wealthy, it would be called a pomander from the word for apple, which you could smell and it would be delightful. But the belief is that this good smell could prevent the miasma from entering your body. If you happen to get the plague, though, some doctors would simply give up because there was a recognition that you're going to be dead in a few days. A uh, few doctors would propose treatments. These, of course, could be more drastic because once the buboes, the swellings of what we now know are the lymph nodes, would appear, a few brave doctors could try to simply cut them open to try to let the pus flow or try to burn them off. I can't imagine the horrific pain of this. or. Uh, This, you don't get it in the 14th century, but it starts appearing in the 16th century. One of the most infamous remedies, but it's worth mentioning because a lot of doctors prescribed it. You take a live chicken and you put its anus on the plague bubo. You tie it. I don't know how you tie a live chicken to a person like that. And the idea is that the chicken's bottom is supposed to absorb the plague poisons out of the person it's at points where like this where you realize sometimes we just don't want to pay attention to the past
0: well you gotta try everything you never know what works
1: yeah yeah but it says something about the desperation i think in times of plague outbreaks
0: it really does that just the burning that just sounds incredibly painful and the chickens just sound incredibly awkward yeah exactly (laughs) now who what were the flagellons yeah
1: okay Uh, glad you bring them up because often when people talk about the 14th century Black Death, it's one of the first phenomena that's brought up. A uh, Flagella is the Latin word for a whip. And so a flagellant is someone that whips themselves, usually for religious purposes. It's an extreme form of doing penance, punishing yourself to appease God's anger. And so this phenomenon had existed before the Black Death, but one of the most infamous examples of flagellants They seem to have appeared in what's now northern Germany and the Netherlands in 1348, probably before the plague reached those regions, but word had reached them. You get large groups of people, and from all classes of society, from the poor up to the rich, lay people and priests, who would strip down to the waist, mostly men but some women as well, and they would whip themselves bloody as they marched from town to town. Ideally, they were supposed to march for 33 days, 33 and a half days, actually, to commemorate how many years Christ was alive as a human being. And they gathered great crowds around them because people are looking for any answer, any cure. They say, hey, these extreme people, maybe this is what could satisfy God's anger should make it clear that this was pretty rare. Most people in the Middle Ages uh, during the Black Death didn't do this. It was a few groups in these German lands. And very quickly, the bishops and the pope himself actually put a stop to it. They said, no, God wants us to pray and ask for forgiveness, but you don't actually have to do that. And so by the end of 1348, the pope had actually issued a bull, a strong uh, declaration against them and the flagellants seem to have disappeared
0: as this extreme religious reaction. Very interesting. Now, zooming, kind of, zooming out a little bit, what was the overall scope of the damage that the Black Death brought? You'll
1: often hear, still, it's, it's repeated on websites and textbooks all the time, that they trot out the, the, the ratio that one-third of Europe died. There's nothing wrong with that. But historians, especially demographers who study populations, who have looked at the documents more closely, they all come up with different numbers, but they all seem to come to a much more dramatic number of between 50 and 60% mortality, at least for Western Europe, where the documents have been studied better. And so, I mean, we might ask, uh, what's the difference between one-third and one-half? But I think if you look at the people around you, it can be especially, it hits home even harder when you realize one out of every two people you know from every class every race ethnicity gone perhaps even more and the people who have again uh, studied these documents most closely we often have the best evidence for the higher classes of society and especially for priests and it looks like the numbers of priests who died could be even higher in the the 60 percent or more range so this could especially horrify A medieval person for whom your average medieval peasant for whom the priest is the leader of their village and their passageway to God. And when he's gone, what do you do? So it's amazing that medieval society actually was able to pick up the pieces and keep on moving on when you have 50 to 60 percent of people dead.
0: It really is impressive how far we've come with such a horrific scale of death how far we've come 700 years later Now at the time what public health initiatives if any were there you know in the form of like pest controls ass graves body um, the guy like from Monty Python with the cart coming to collect the bodies what 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 were these put into place
1: yeah, no. I'm glad you asked about that because I think it's um, something especially right now uh, as we're living through a new pandemic yeah, that people are thinking a lot about and impressively there were quite a few public health measures almost immediately but there wasn't a an organized effort between communities or nations so we find different phenomena in different places so in some cities we get pretty dramatic quarantine. For example, the city of Milan simply shut its gates and wouldn't let anybody in or out. Other cities uh, wouldn't go that far, but they would force the people they thought were causing miasma to leave the city. So like I mentioned before, butchers and tanners especially would come in for blame because their trades produced a lot of blood and foul-smelling produce. So they would be forced to close up shop or move out of cities. Something is more tragic and poignant, we can see in a few cities, one of the most famous of these cemeteries uh, that were formed, uh, one of the most famous is in downtown London. It's called the East Smithfield Cemetery. It was excavated just a few years ago. And it's actually one of the cemeteries where we have some of the best DNA evidence. A massive plot of land was claimed by, together by the church and the city to accommodate the burial of thousands of dead as they knew they were coming. And I bring this up because it looks very much like the same mass graves that are being dug right as we speak in Iran and Italy as they're trying to manage the influx of thousands of dead. I bring this up because we often get the image of medieval society falling apart and them just throwing bodies willy-nilly into plague pits. Now, that did happen in a few cities, but what really shocked people, I guess in a good way, about the East Smithfield Cemetery is how organized it was. Even when we know plague was wiping through London, they still took the time to make orderly even graves for all of their fellow townspeople and quickly wrap them up cover them in um chemical lime to dissolve the bodies protect people so we do find measures to try to keep out plague or protect people once it's there. But you bring you bring up the, the fun scene of Monty Python, uh, bring out your dead. And that's worth looking at the historical reality. The actual body collection like that doesn't seem to have happened until much later. For example, the Great Plague of London in 1665, which was a much later outbreak of the second pandemic. We know then there was systematic body collection from door to door and also the infamous but probably effective measure of once you knew a household had a plague you lock them in you paint a red cross on the door and you don't let anybody in or out so enforced isolation so it it would take several centuries to develop all the measures but uh they did occur during the long term of the second pandemic
0: That is a very harrowing word picture you just painted there, a red, a door with a red cross on it. You just know those people, it's very haunting. So jumping back into today, do you see any correlation between the Black Death and what's going on now with the coronavirus? I mean, a lot of people are asking that, or or rather they're not asking it, and they're simply throwing
1: out the comparison. And uh, we have to be careful. I mean, this is a terrible disease outbreak, global, that we're living through right now. But We have to realize the major differences. Black death is a bacterial disease, and uh, the coronavirus is a virus, obviously. There is an easy cure for plague, which is uh, just antibiotics. But if you don't get them within a week, you're as dead as anyone in the Middle Ages, and people have not developed immunity whereas with a virus uh, the current mortality rate still shocks everyone from day to day but we're looking at a microscopic fraction of 1% composed compared to 50% of all humanity and they're they're currently working on a vaccine and in most cases of viral illness people can build up an immunity and that's why vaccines work so I think it is useful to make comparisons to past disease outbreaks, but we also need to sort of give give ourselves a reality check and realize just how much worse plague is in general and the Black Death in particular was. This is a trying time we're going through, but it's not the Black Death.
0: Is there any lessons that we could learn nowadays?
1: If we could take a lesson from the Black Death, I mean, there's a lot that we, we shouldn't imitate medieval people on. I love the Middle Ages, but I uh, wouldn't want to live there. But we've talked about the flagellants. We've talked about their ridiculous cures. But in 1348, in the Kingdom of Paris, as plague was approaching from the south, from Italy, the king of France did something quite amazing and something that seems so very modern to us. And I think it's it's a good lesson. He asked himself, asked his advisors, who should I listen to in this time of potential disaster? And the answer was the doctors and the scientists and the professors. And so, sure enough, he goes literally across the street and in, in the middle of medieval Paris to the University of Paris, and he asks the professors of medicine and science should also say the professors of astrology as well. That's something a bit dated, but the professors had asked for them to write up a document offering advice in the face of an epidemic disease. And even though their advice fits what we were talking about before uh, with, with cures that we wouldn't do today, this model of a head of a nation trusting the scientists and doctors, and public health professionals to help and guide us in a time of epidemic disease is, I think, exactly what we a lesson we all need to take today, especially the leaders of nations. These public health professionals are telling us, stay home, keep yourself isolated. That will, as they say, flatten the curve.
0: So I think that's an instance where we should pay attention to the 14th century. I think that is a a great lesson that we could learn. It not only applies to the uh, pandemic outbreak, the coronavirus, but it also applies to other factors in our life that we kind of go through every day. And Professor, you said earlier that you were working on a book. Can you go ahead and um, let us know what that's about real quick? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a new book I'm working on called The Black Death. Facts and Fictions. It's sort of a sequel to a book that I had come out last year called The Middle Ages Facts and Fictions. And in each of these books, uh, I look at about a dozen myths about the topic. We've already touched on a few of these myths about, was it a hemorrhagic fever, the flagellants, and so on. I explore in each chapter a different myth or misconception about the Black Death. And I walk the reader through how the myth came about, its history, and then walk through the better sources, scientific and historical, for understanding the reality behind the Black Death. And it's, it's meant for um, students and for popular audiences, so I think it's very timely in what we're going through right now.
0: And when does that come out, and where can people find it?
1: Uh, the goal is to have it out by Christmas, fingers crossed, working on it right now. It's being published by ABC Clio could be uh ordered from their website or it will certainly
0: appear on amazon and similar book selling websites beautiful all right thank you professor so with that thank you for coming on the show professor black you're welcome it's been great talking with you well that does it for this episode hope you guys enjoyed the interview be sure to follow winston on twitter and check out his book that is coming out this winter If you like the show, feel free to like and subscribe. And like J. Cole said, history repeats itself and that's just how it goes.